you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. We are coming to the end of our time in what has been called the greatest letter ever written, and we are in chapter 14. You'll find that on page 948, and we are going to read the whole chapter this morning. We're going to read verses 1 down to verse 23, verse 1 to 23, Romans 14, 1 to 23. And before we do, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on the preaching of this important portion of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we turn our eyes to you and we lift up our hands to you as children to their father begging for the things that they need. And we know, oh God, that you are good and we know that you give abundantly more than we could ask or think. And so we pray that you would pour out such a blessing on us this morning that we would have not have room to receive it. We pray that you would make us to see the Lord Jesus and to hear him and understand more of what we have in him. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know your presence and the power of the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel and the transforming grace of the gospel this morning. We pray, our God, that we would know the warmth and affection of Christ and that that would overflow into our congregation. We pray that you would make us attentive that you would prepare every heart, that you would that you would till up the soil of our souls this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. And now the Apostle Paul continuing on in that applicatory section of Romans. He has been uh, very systematically applying the gospel and what is the fruit of the gospel. As he continues, he says, Now, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died." So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 
Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a very young boy, I had a a proclivity for making sandwiches out of anything that my mom would put on the plate. So if there was a pile of mashed potatoes and there was bread, I would make a sandwich. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced that sort of happiness And my dad, for a reason still unbeknownst to me, loved to steal that joy out of my little heart. And he would tell me not to make sandwiches out of my mashed potatoes and scrambled eggs and chicken and anything else that was on my plate. And then I reached adulthood when I could uh, make any kind of sandwich out of anything to my heart's delight. And there was sort of a guilty pleasure about making sandwiches out of everything because I still felt my dad's conscience-binding, joy-stealing prohibition of making mashed potato sandwiches. And to this day, I have to be careful when my dad is in my presence not to, in some sort of sinister or mean-spirited way, eat a mashed potato sandwich right in front of his face to show him the goodness and beauty of mashed potato sandwiches. Now, maybe... You all think I'm using you for psychological help this morning, which I'm not. I was searching high and low, trying to find an illustration for this text. That's the best I can do. And the Apostle Paul, when he is entering into Romans 14, he is very strategically dealing with a problem that's happened in the Church of Rome. It's actually the first time in this letter that Paul has actually addressed this church based on some particular setting in this church. Everything else has, by and large, been general. Everything else that he said has been personally applicable to any church anywhere, not specifically to the Church of Rome. But here, for the first time, Paul, who had never been to this church, and so you might ask, how could Paul have known if he had never been to this church? How could he have known the situation? Well, in chapter 16, we find out he knew many people in this church. He had many friends that were members of this church and in leadership in this church. And the apostle knows that there is something of a division brewing in this church. He saved this all the way to the application section. He started that application section by applying in chapter 12 in the first part those general principles of how the gospel shapes the whole of our lives, and then he talked about how the gospel shapes our lives in the church one to another, and then he talked about it in the world with regard to our enemies, and then in chapter 13 in the civil realm, he talked about how the gospel produces fruit in the lives of Christians who pay their taxes, and Paul has systematically unpacked this, and he has given all of these principles, and then at the end of chapter 13, he gave us that big broad principle that the Christian life is to be a life of love, and now he moves into a specific application with regard to something going on in the Church of Rome. Now, let me say this is a long introduction. It's necessary. We don't know what was going on in Rome. If you think you know what was going on in Romans 14, you do not know as you ought to know. 
because you can read commentator after commentator and there is speculation after speculation and no one is quite sure what exactly was the underlying teaching that was leading some people only to eat vegetables and some people to say that drinking alcoholic beverages were wrong and some people to observe days and and perhaps festivals and, and no one's quite sure what we can be sure of is that the Bible has a lot to say about legalism in the realm of food. And what we can be sure of is that there were differing problems over food and asceticism that were taking place in Colossae. That's not what Paul's dealing with in Romans. And we know that there were issues in Corinth where some people felt like they couldn't eat meat that was offered in idolatrous worship services. And that's not what Paul's dealing with here. And there are a litany of other places where food legalism was taking place and legalistic teachings about ascetic practices, practices of self-denial were taking place. And, and we don't know exactly what Paul's dealing with. One, one thing we can say, I think, is that Paul is probably dealing with the division between Jewish converts and Gentile converts. It would make sense to think that they're in Rome in a predominantly Gentile church, a church that had never been under the yoke of the Mosaic Law, had never known any of the ceremonial prohibitions in the Mosaic Law, had never known that there were clean and unclean animals in the Old Covenant and redemptive history, had never known about the feasts and the festivals, that they were free from that yoke of bondage that, that Peter calls it. They never had to be under what Peter called a yoke of bondage. They had entered into the full experience of the freedom of the Lord Jesus. They had had their sins forgiven, their guilt taken away, the power of sin broken, their lives had been transformed, they had known all of the glorious liberty of the sons of God, and then there was another group. There was a group of Jewish converts in Rome, and these had been under the yoke of the Mosaic Law, and they had probably growing up before they were converted, they had practiced the feasts and the festivals and the special Sabbaths, the extra Sabbaths in the Old Testament, and all those things that God prepared in the Old Testament as redemptive historical mile markers pointing to Jesus and perhaps, perhaps now that they're in Christ, they have not fully had their consciences informed by the scriptures because the scriptures are very clear that in the new covenant, nothing is unclean. God let the sheet down three times for Peter to tell him that all is clean, that the animal division in the Old Testament was pointing to the Jew-Gentile division. And now in Christ, there is no Jew-Gentile division. And so there's no more need for this clean-unclean animal division and there's no more need for the festivals and the the new moons and the sabbaths because jesus has come and all of those things paul says in colossians were pointing to him they were his shadow people were to see that and see something about the coming redeemer in those the joy that he would bring by his work of redemption but for whatever reason there was a group in this church and they hadn't fully come to realize the absolute freedom that they had in Jesus, that their consciences had not been fully informed. Jesus himself had said in Mark 7 that nothing that enters the mouth is unclean, but what comes out is unclean, and it shows that the heart is unclean. And yet they had not had their consciences informed. And so Paul, it seems, is dealing with an issue of difference in the church. He'll throw this under the language of weaker and stronger brethren. Now, let me say this as, at the outset. When I was a kid, I had um, a, it was not a Rubik's Cube, it was some other kind of Rubik's toy, 
and I could never fully figure out how to get all the rings to connect on this toy. This text is a little bit like that. It's very complicated. This text is very nuanced. And so we're going to look, and I'm going to try to make it as easy as I can for you this morning. We're going to look at two things. First, in verses 1 to 12, we're going to look at the gospel and Christian liberty. And then secondly, we're going to look at verses 13 to the end of the chapter, the gospel and Christian love. The gospel and Christian liberty, the gospel and Christian love. Well, notice what Paul says. He says at the outset, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. The issue in the church was that some were not welcoming others. They were not sitting with them. They were not fellowshipping with them. It probably is an error in Christian living that Paul's dealing with. In Galatia, when they said you need Christ plus ceremonial things and and to abstain from certain foods and drinks, they were saying in order to be justified, in order to be accepted by God, you need Jesus plus the Mosaic law. That's not what these people are saying. There are some in this church who were saying that Christ is enough. Notice in verse 10 that Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Then again in verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another anymore, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. And then again in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat. And then verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul is writing to a group of believers and he's writing to a group of believers that has different emphases and are pulling in different directions over the issue of Christian liberty. Now, Paul will talk about two groups. He will talk about the strong and he will talk about the weak. But within those two groups, there are probably three to five groups of people who are trying to figure out what is Christian liberty? How free are they in Jesus? How much of this world can they enjoy in this life? I want to read to you a quote from the Westminster Confession, chapter 20 on Christian liberty. I think it's the greatest quote about Christian liberty in all of church history. And this is true for you if you're in Christ. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, condemning wrath of God, curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God, their yielding obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all of which were common to believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, in the greater boldness of access to the throne of God, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law partook of. So what the divines are trying to say is that in almost every facet of your life, Christ has purchased freedom for you. They will go on to say that God alone is Lord of the conscience. That's a big thing. That comes straight out of Romans 14. And there was a group in this church who would be considered the strong Christians, and they got that, and they lived in light of that, and they enjoyed 
drinking wine and eating all kinds of foods and they enjoyed life because they knew that God had created all things good and they knew that God was good and they knew they had been set free from the ceremonial law and they knew that Christ had merited everything for them and they knew that God wanted them to have joy. Notice that Paul actually says, interesting in this, in this chapter, verse 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And they had experienced that joy and that peace, and they understood all the benefits they had in Christ. And they were the strong ones in the church. And Paul includes himself. He will say, we who are strong ought to bear with the weak. Now, who were the weak? The weak were those with very strong consciences who thought that they were the strong brothers. This is the subtle twist. The first turn is that the weak brothers in the church thought that they were the strong brothers, thought the strong brothers were the weak brothers. It's very important to get that. It's very possible for you to have a very strong conscience that's not biblically informed. That's the problem that Paul's dealing with. There are millions of Christians who think they are the strong brother because they don't drink or they don't do certain things or they only eat vegetables. They are the weak brothers. Paul very clearly says that. Paul is not ever going to give one inch on who is a strong brother and who is a weak brother. He will not make the weak brother the strong brother by the end of this chapter. That is a huge mistake that many Christians make. Paul is going to teach us how to live together in unity because the problem in the church was that the weaker brethren thought that they were the stronger brethren. They were judging the stronger brothers for eating and drinking. The stronger brothers, because they knew their freedom, were looking at the weaker brothers and they were despising them. Notice what Paul does there in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, let me say this just right now. That's the big problem. Everybody in this church was erring sinfully in how they responded to others who didn't agree with them. Calvin said that, that this is the way in the church, that, that people take a difference and they blow it up into contention. They slide into contention. And then they sink their heels in, and church after church after church after church after church after church in America has been destroyed by contentions over somewhat minor differences. Now, Paul's not saying that the error of the weaker brother is okay. He's not anywhere in here saying the weaker brother is okay to think that it's wrong to eat certain foods. In fact, he says because he thinks it's wrong, even though God has not said it's wrong, if he ate it with a, a conscience that was wrongly informed, it would be sin for him. So he is in a very dangerous place, the weaker brother. The weaker brother is in the more dangerous of the two places. And not only would he, he, is he setting himself up to sin if he partakes of something that he thinks is wrong when it's not wrong, and to think it's wrong is to say that something God created is bad in itself, which is to say God is bad. You see the problem. The weaker brother has a very convoluted view of who God is, what creation is, what God has created for good and enjoyable usage, but he is judging. He is judging those 
who understand their liberty in Christ. That's the even bigger problem. The propensity of the weaker brother is to sit back and cast condemnation and not welcome into some kind of full membership in the church or into some full fellowship in the church. And you could see how easily this would happen. Perhaps the weaker brethren were those Jewish converts and they got together to celebrate Passover on their own. But the Gentiles didn't feel like they needed to and they didn't need to. And God had not commanded it, and there was danger in doing it. And when it crept into the church in Galatia, Paul heaped the greatest condemnation on it. But they certainly, Paul will say this in this text, they, they could esteem one day above another as long as they're not putting, making it a salvation issue. As long as they were not saying, I, we need this for salvation. God has commanded us to do this. But they were sitting back, and they were excluding others, and they were, they were thinking, we are the more mature Christians. Let me tell you this. I'm sure this is true of some of us here, and I've seen it over and over again in my life. There are multitudes who are weaker brethren who think that they are the more mature believer, and they sit back and judge stronger Christians. And one thing I've noticed, actually men and women in the world think that things that God has created to be good, they think Christians ought not enjoy because they have misinformed consciences. Paul will actually say this in Titus, to the, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, nothing is pure. And so they live in drunkenness and all kinds of sexual immorality and then think that Christians ought not in any way whatsoever engage in any kind of drinking or any kind of enjoyable activity lawful that God has created to be lawful. So you can see how subtle a problem this is, and it's a problem that affects the whole congregation. It's a problem that is it's about to rip apart a congregation. And here's the glory. Let me say this this morning. The problem that Paul is talking about is over something as insignificant as food. Oh, how many problems have been caused over food? If you could just trace the scriptures, see how much false teaching, how much error... I mean, the fall of our first parents was ever a piece of fruit. How much legalism was ever food? How much in our day, how many people want to bind people's consciences? I will eat some gluten-packed bread if I want to. And don't you dare, and don't you dare go judging me. Don't you dare go judging me. You smile, but you know I'm right. How many, how many errors over something so insignificant, and yet here's the glory, here's the glory. That error that is so seemingly insignificant about food grows to such an extent that it threatens to rip the church apart, and yet it's cured by the gospel. It's cured by the gospel. It's cured by what Jesus has done. Notice what Paul says. Notice this. Paul says in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it Of the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. Paul's acknowledging that the different groups in the church were all doing what they were doing, whether they were enjoying their liberty or whether they were wrongfully sacrificing it. Nevertheless, they were seeking to live to the Lord. 
Their hearts were to please God. Their, they wanted to walk in, in obedience to God. They wanted to, they wanted to honor the Lord in their eating or in their not eating and in everything that they were doing. Paul says, listen, each one lives to the Lord, dies to the Lord, eats to the Lord, doesn't eat as unto the Lord. And, and so the principle is that our relationships in the church are not first horizontal. They are first vertical. And they've become vertical because Jesus, notice, notice this, notice verse 9, most important verse in the chapter. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. The death of Jesus is so all-encompassing that there's not one problem in the church that it doesn't solve. Division over food practices, dietary laws, observing one day, not observing days, the death of Jesus solves that. Because what Paul says is, listen, for this reason, for this end, Christ died and rose again that he might be the Lord. And that means, so hear me out, Christian liberty is built on the principle that no one can judge you, but God will judge you, but you've been redeemed by Jesus, so live for Christ. That's the principle. That's the safeguards. God builds into this potentially very dangerous doctrine of Christian liberty. It's potentially very dangerous. Lots of people abuse and live in sin under the name of Christian liberty. We don't get to do that. Paul builds in all these safeguards around it. And those safeguards are God has redeemed us because God alone is the judge. When we sit back and we judge each other for practices that are not in and of themselves sinful, whether eating and drinking or refusing to eat and drink, if we despise and we judge, Paul tells us that we are making ourselves judge. Notice, he actually says in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on another? His own master upholds him. And then Paul will talk about God being the judge of the living and the dead. Notice verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a day coming when every one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account of what we've done in the body, whether good or bad, from infancy to death. We will give an account for everything, and it's going to be vastly more searching, and it's going to be vastly more um, heart-wrenching to have the judge of all the earth render judgment over our actions than anyone in the church. And no one in the church has a right to judge others in the church over sinless actions, actions that are not sinful in themselves because of preference differences. But Paul says, we've been redeemed by Christ. He doesn't leave it as God is going to judge you for all your actions and you're going to be condemned. He's told us in 8.1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So even though everything's going to be laid bare, and even though it's going to be the most searching and mouth-stopping day of your life, if you are in Christ, Christ has died for you, he has lived for you, so that he might be Lord of your conscience, so that he might be your redeemer in every aspect of your life. And that means the gospel even touches to the aspect of your dinner table. The gospel reaches so far that it affects even the meals that you have with people. The gospel is so great. It's so great that Paul could tell the stronger brethren in 1 Corinthians 11, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Don't despise the Lord's table. He doesn't say don't drink. 
He doesn't say don't eat certain foods. You have freedom to do that. But everything is to be done unto the Christ who has redeemed us. And that Christ is the only Lord of our life. And he lived for that and he died for that. I want to say this this morning. The Son of God had to live and die and be buried and be raised from the dead in order to be the Lord of your life. And he's the Lord of each person who confesses him. And notice what Paul says in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There is a principle of individual examination in this text. I do not get to come to you and tell you how I think you ought to be eating and drinking. You do not get to come to me and tell me how you think I ought to be eating and drinking. God has not given that to us. That's something God has withheld from you. Jesus Christ is the Lord alone of the conscience. And let me tell you this this morning. That is the most freeing thing in the world. It's the most freeing thing, and yet it's the most safeguarding thing. Because if I think, not you, but Jesus is the Lord of my conscience, and Jesus is judge over all the earth, and Jesus died and rose again for me, then I want to live for him, not for myself. But if I'm your judge, and if you're my judge, I'm essentially saying, I will live for myself, and I will live for you, and you will live for me. You see how complicated this gets. You see how very complex this is. When we forget that Christ has redeemed us, that Christ is Lord alone of the conscience, that Jesus is the only one who's going to be able to judge his people, then I stop judging you and you stop judging me. It's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we inevitably try to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter anything about your circumstances in life. If you take your eyes off Jesus, you will inevitably, you may be the nicest person, you may be passive, you may be aggressive, you may be passive-aggressive, don't be that. You may be aggressive-aggressive, that's better than passive-aggressive, just because I'm aggressive-aggressive. You, you, may, you may have, you may be an introvert, you may be an extrovert, you may like to talk a lot, you may like to be quiet, doesn't matter. If you take your eyes off Jesus, you will try to put yourself in the place of Jesus. You will. It doesn't matter. Paul, I think, very clearly tells us that in this text. And so we have to understand that there's a liberty in Christ and that we've been set free from not only sin's power and dominion and guilt and Satan's bondage and the bondage of the world and all those spiritual enemies that we hate so much, but we've been set free from rules and regulations that God has not given us. He's given us 10 commandments, and they are the only things that will ever bind for you on Judgment Day. He has not given us dietary laws. Now, I've often wondered how these probably Jewish Christians could end up being vegetarians because it was, you couldn't be an Old Covenant member of the church, an Israelite, and be a vegetarian. You had to eat the Passover lamb. So you, you had to eat meat. God commanded that because that pointed forward to feeding on Jesus, the Lamb of God, but somehow it had, it had so perverted down to that. And so Paul is now addressing that. And then notice how he ends this first section. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's the first principle. Know your Christian liberty. Know your relationship to others. Know your relationship to Christ. Know how what Christ did for you affects even the mundane things of whether I eat certain foods or drink certain drinks. And then secondly, Paul gives us this principle of the gospel and Christian love. 
Now, this, it seems to me, is where we need to focus so carefully. This is where Paul's moving. He could have left it. He could have left it in that first section. I think there are some of us, I'm included, might have liked him to have left it there. But he doesn't leave it there. He takes the principle of love and he says, the liberty that you have in Christ needs to be guided by love. It needs to be guided by love. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then notice what he says in 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. There are no foods and no drinks that are unclean in themselves. There is no food. There's nothing out there that is unclean, that is unholy, that, that is in itself evil. We love to blame things out there. We love to put prohibitions on things out there rather than the problem. So abuse of something is a heart issue. It's not an issue with the thing itself. That's a big, important principle. Fundamentalism is built on the idea that there are unclean things out there that you need to stay away from because they're the problem. The problem is the heart. At but, Paul says, but Paul says, to the one who thinks they're unclean and has a conscience that's been wrongly informed, they are unclean. And for that one to partake of them and not to do it in faith with a clear conscience, it is wrong for him or for her to do that. And Paul then backs up and says, what ought your relationship to be to a weaker brother who hasn't had their conscience informed? He says we ought not become a stumbling block to them. Now, Paul is not saying, and I will argue with you over this, He's not saying you never eat certain foods or never drink drink anywhere because you might make somebody stumble. I will argue with you. As soon as we do that, you are making the weaker brother the stronger brother. You may choose not to drink. You may choose to only be a vegetarian. You may choose to eat the big burger that they challenge you to eat so you can get your name on the board. I've never really understood that. You've got to do it in like 30 minutes. B&D Burger does that. Never gotten that. You may, you may choose to try to eat that in public, and, 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 and that's okay. That's okay. Um, you may make a lot of vegetarians mad when they see you do that. That's okay. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, I won't eat the big burger at B&D because I may upset my vegetarian friends. He's not saying, I'll never drink Jesus drank publicly. Jesus Christ, the Savior, drank publicly. He was called a drunkard and a glutton for eating and drinking publicly with people that were eating and drinking. So we've got to be clear on that. We don't want to make the weaker brother the stronger brother. What Paul is saying is that we don't want to entice the weaker brother to enter into the act of eating certain foods or drinking certain drink that's fine to eat and drink and so make him stumble. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, because I love the brethren, I don't want to force someone with a, an immature and uninformed and misinformed conscience to fall into sin by saying, oh no, come on, this is fine. It's fine for us to eat the big burger at B&D. It's don't you like happiness? You don't like the beautiful burger? You just want to eat salads and look wonderful all the time? <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the payoff. Pay um, 
And we laugh, but that's what's going on in the church. Paul is saying we don't want to entice someone who has a misinformed conscience to enter into something that is lawful to do, but would be sin for them to do it because they think it's sin. That's what Paul's saying. That means that Christian liberty, in the words of Roland Barnes, demands discernment. It demands discernment. It means that you need to be sensitive about where people are. You need to know people's conscience issues. Doesn't mean that you never eat things and drink things out in public. It does not mean that. It means that you're sensitive to people in the church, where they're at, with their consciences. Paul has nothing to say in this chapter whatsoever about the believer's relationship to the unbeliever. This is all within the context of the fellowship of the saints. And that means if you have a weaker brother into your home, you need to be conscious of their needs. You need to be conscious of where their their you need to be conscious of where their conscience has been misinformed so that you don't cause them to stumble. Now, I want to say this this morning. I think that Paul is being magnificently brilliant in this chapter. Because Paul is not saying, that's the end of the story. Live and let live, weak and strong, it doesn't matter. Paul's actually instructing the weaker brethren that have the misinformed conscience, while at the same time telling the stronger brethren to bear with the weak and to act in love towards them. Paul is bringing people along. Paul is teaching the principle of Christian liberty, but he's doing it very pastorally through the back door of the principle of Christian love. And, and so Paul would have all of those who have misinformed consciences about things to have their consciences informed by God's word. He would have them know the liberty they have, but he would never force that on them. He would never want to become a stumbling block to them in their journey and their pathway there. I want to say this this morning. There are far too many Reformed people, far too many theologians in the Reformed church that expect everybody to get it right now, right away, like I get it, and where I, when I didn't get it like that 15 years ago. That's the principle Paul's teaching, that it takes patience, that the love that we're called to show each other is a patient love. It's a love that knows it takes time for people to grow and to understand. I can't tell you how many times in my seven years of pastoral ministry, I have heard people in the church say off the wall things, and I just have to bite my tongue. I have to bite my tongue. I have to remember my dad telling me not to eat the mashed potato sandwich, and that one day they will understand how great mashed potato sandwiches are. I have to bite my tongue. And you know, nine out of ten times, that same individual years later says the right thing where they said the wrong thing, and it's been clear that they've come along and they've grown, and God has taught them and they've matured, and they've understood more of what God has said in his word. There's so much here. There's so much more that could be said. I want us to walk out of this, focusing on verse 17. I think this pretty much sums up Paul's concern because it it would be possible for us to make this an ultimate issue to make the eating and drinking, what can I eat, what can I drink, how, when should I abstain, when shouldn't I abstain, when may I be making a brother fall, when may I not. You could see how, how easily that could happen. You could see how this could take driver's seat 
And there's lots of people that are consumed with this subject, and they talk about it, and when do we separate from other churches, and when do we have fellowship with other churches, and if you have, you have even seminaries that bind the conscience of their students not to drink anything while they're there in seminary, and, and, and they make this an ultimate thing, and they miss the point. They miss the point. The point is, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. You see, if the strong make their liberty in eating and drinking the thing, if the weak make their weak and misinformed ideas about eating and drinking the thing, they've missed the point. The point is that God's kingdom is ultimately not concerned with what we eat and drink. It's indifferent. It's indifferent. Listen very carefully. It's an indifferent thing. But what is not indifferent is that our lives be marked by righteousness and peace in the fellowship, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think Paul inserts that at the end because he wants these two groups to get over whatever the issue is that's brewing there, to get past it, to learn to live for that time together at peace, and to understand that the kingdom is not reduced down to the minutia of certain dietary practices, but that it's heart issues It's issues of righteousness. Are we walking uprightly? Are we fleeing from sin? Are we putting sin to death? It's issues of peace. Are we seeking to bring peace? Oh, to be a peacemaker. Oh, to be a peacemaker. Blessed are peacemakers. They're like God. God is a peacemaker. How many churches just need to hear that sermon over and over and over and over again? How many individual Christians need to hear every day of their life, don't bicker, don't bite, don't slander, don't gossip, don't cut, don't tear down because you're not being a peacemaker. You're not being a peacemaker. A peacemaker says, I love these people, I want good, we need to go forward in the gospel. And joy. It's not about asceticism. It's not about being the most miserable person we can be. It's about having joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God's about. As we go from this place, and I realize we have a very different context than they had, and yet we have similar issues by way of analogy, I would encourage us to be thinking, if you're in Christ, every aspect of your life is governed by the fact that Christ has died for you and risen for you, so you live to him. Whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether you're working, whether you're playing, whether you're ministering, whether you're relaxing, whatever you're doing, every second of your life and every activity in your life ought to be lived by faith in Christ, ought to be lived to his glory and honor. I never got that as a kid. I used to read that on the wall. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all in the name of of the Lord, give glory to God. I, I never got that. I get that now. That should be the goal of our lives. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. That means every one of your seconds and moments and activities are covered under the blood of Jesus and you are in union with Jesus and he is the Lord of your life. Conversations should be governed by the fact that Jesus is the Lord of our life. I want to say, if you're not in Christ this morning, that you need to flee to Jesus Christ. You need to flee to him. You need to go to him so that he will be Savior and Lord of your life. There's only two. There's only two. Options. Live for self, live for Jesus. That's it. He died, he rose, so that he might have the right 
he merited the right to be Lord of the lives and the consciences of his people. Last thing I want to charge us with is there is a day of judgment coming. And while this is a sobering thought, all of our actions ought to be done in light of that. They ought to be done in light of the fact that every word, every thought, every action is going to be laid bare. I had a friend in um, when I was a young Christian, he used to say, it's a, it's a fearful thought to think of the Lord cutting open my heart like a lamb is cut open and just laid bare so that you see everything there. He's already seen it. He's already seen it. Um, but if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You will pass through that judgment. You already have passed through that judgment. But it ought to help guide us to be men and women that want to live in liberty and want to walk in love for the glory of the Lord Jesus in all that we do. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would please take these truths and you would work them into us. We pray, our God, that you would make us to know the liberty that your Son has purchased for us. We pray that we would also know more of the love that we are called to in the body, that we would know righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, that we would learn to care for one another and uh, live for you and live to love and to honor and to do well and do good unto others. We pray, our God, that you would help us, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that he might work that righteousness and peace and joy in us. We pray, Father, giving you thanks for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.